Good morning, Goldendale, and hello to all of my fellow liberty-loving Americans all across the fruited plains from sea to shining sea. This is the host who loves you the most, Luke Throop, here on another fine, fabulous, fantastic, fiery Friday morning, friends, for Torch Report 369, meeting the global elite. Who exactly is attending this Bilderberg meeting, and what the heck are these globalists up to anyway, friends? We're going to get deep into that today, but let's just start out by saying that words matter. I want to strive a little here to connect the dots for a moment between fascism, communism, Leninism, Marxism, collectivism, and socialism. I want to prove that these different isms share a common conceptual framework to demonstrate how each of these isms are in fact a mental, uh, they're, they're, I'm sorry, a mimetic manifestation of the mental, the woke mind virus. And I want to show how this infectious mental disease destroys individuality and culture as it assimilates individuals, individuals into the collective hive mind, the collective cult friends. But to do so, it feels appropriate to explore a little bit of nuance. So first, let's start out with defining what an ism is is so that I can stop using the quotation marks in the uh, in the report there I was putting ism but ism is actually a word ism is a noun it's a distinctive doctrine a cause or a theory and the second definition as a noun of an ism an ism is an oppressive and especially discriminatory attitude or belief we all have to come to grips with our isms says the Merriam Webster dictionary. So, you know, it goes on and talks about, you know, using isms as a as a suffix, you know, it's it's a process, it's a practice, it's a manner of action and behavior, it's a prejudice or discrimination. It's a it's a condition if you will, an abnormal state, a condition that results from you know, insanity, among other things. But an ism is ultimately a doctrine. It's a theory. It's it's a cause that people believe in. It's a belief system that causes people to act in a certain way. It is it is common in humanity for some groups of people to believe uh, that they have a doctrine or a theory or a belief that causes them to think they're better than other groups of people. It's totally normal. It's a, it's a natural part of human dynamics. It is a particularly pernicious psychological proclivity for group think that plagues humanity, that causes so many people, so many types of isms to manifest in society as discriminatory or oppressive. And at least that's what the dictionary says these days. You know, they're changing the dictionary all the time, uh, rewriting what the definition of words mean, like, you know, vaccines are safe and effective, etc. Now, it, it's the line of thinking, these isms, you know, and group think. It goes something like, you know, our group, collectivism, if you will, you know, or socialism, communism, Marxism, Leninism, you know, they believe our group is better. You know, our group deserves to get the cookie jar. Our group has the right way of doing things. Our group and our group alone knows what's best for the whole of humanity. Our group knows what's best even for you and your group. Now, like I said, it's a natural part of human dynamics. This tendency crops up everywhere in society all the time. And when this tendency for groupthink crops up, all of the isms are close behind. This belief 
that one group knows what's best for every other group is the common ground between all of these frameworks, the communism, the fascism, the socialism. They all believe that they alone know what is best for everybody else. And if you really think about it, friends, really think about it here, just to be intellectually honest, to be logical, to be unbiased as humanly possible, objectively considering the circumstance, if you really think about it, conservatism and patriotism are essentially the same in that sense. You know, inevitably, we believe that we know what's best for everybody else. As a patriot, a conservative patriot who believes in conservatism and patriotism, I would believe that we need to conserve life, liberty, and uh, and the principles of happiness, constitutional principles. As a patriot, I believe that we should conserve patriotism because it it's good to have pride in one's country and culture and traditions. So it's, it's not different here. Now, I realize that lumping com- communism, fascism, and socialism with conservative and patriotism is, uh, it's probably off-putting. It might be pushing some buttons there a little bit. So before you screech and fling feces at me for defiling the hallowed term patriotism, please understand that I am not claiming patriotism, fascism, and communism are the same thing. That is not what I mean. It's not what I mean at all. Instead, what what I believe is that threaded throughout each of these very different isms, they're not the same, but there lies the common thought that one group knows what's best for everybody else, that their group or that our group knows what's best for everybody else, as well as how best to achieve this. And we see this play out everywhere. So just let me ask, you know, am I wrong in making that statement? Am I wrong for pointing that out? It's it's part of humanity. So I think that anybody can look at that and say, you know what, Luke, I think you're right. I think you've got a point here, and the point is important. I believe that this is irrefutably true, friends, that groupthink distorts perception. Groupthink causes people in all these different groups to believe that they know what's best for everybody else. In other words, <laughs> the desire for one group to control another group is rooted in groupthink, and all of these isms are rooted in group. Think and groupthink being a clinical term, it can be identified through a specific set of predictable symptoms. There are symptoms to groupthink. According to sociologists, groupthink may not always be easy to discern, but it is more likely to arise when there is pressure to reach consensus. Interesting. When there's pressure to reach consensus, what does the group think? And friends, when you hear consensus, think the Delphi method. Okay, They've got a, a process for developing consensus, but that's what gives rise to groupthink. And the groupthink can easily be identified by a number of different symptoms. There are signs of groupthink here I put in the report today. Uh, you know, a few, the illusions of unanimity, you know, that, that everybody believes 
the same thing, that we're in agreement and we feel the same way. It's often difficult to speak out when it seems like everybody else is on the same page, is it not? You know, other signs of groupthink, unquestioned beliefs. You know, we're not allowed to ask questions. Are these masks really safe and effective? Are these vaccines really safe and effective? Is uh, forfeiting our freedom for the illusion of safety really a good idea? Gosh, I don't know, you know, and then rationalizing and self-censorship, you know, self-censorship causes people who might doubt it. Like, I just don't know about that mask stopping a virus, or I just, I'm not real sure that giving up my gas cook stove and my gas car is going to save the planet. I'm not real sure I want to sacrifice my self-sovereignty to the global cabal, you know, just because they're telling me it's for the greater good. I don't know about that. But if everybody seems to be going along with it, then there's a tendency towards self-censorship. Rather than sharing the doubts and the speculation, people remain quiet and assume that the group must know best because, I mean, come on, they must be the experts. Now, a couple of other facets of group think include mind guards. Uh, that, that, that's a direct quote here from the list that was provided by some reputable source. I don't remember which one it was, but the... Uh, the mind guards are self-appointed censors. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, this is like all the fact checkers, right? The fact checkers are mind guards and they try to hide the problematic information from the group. They don't want people to know about these outlying statistics that that prove conclusively that the vaccines do not stop the spread of death and disease. In fact, they don't keep people from getting sick and going to the hospital and dying from disease. So the vaccines are utterly useless and worthless. But the mind guards make sure that most people don't get that information. Uh, also, groupthink invokes this illusion of invulnerability, meaning that if we're in the group and, and it's our group is, is in charge and our group is right, you know, and, and we're invincible, you know, our group can take over the world because, I mean, who would challenge our group? We are the experts. We are the government or whatever the case may be. Now, there is also uh, oftentimes direct pressure to conform in groupthink scenarios. And this direct pressure to conform is placed on the members who pose questions. So those curious peasants kind of get put in their place when they start asking questions by direct peer pressure uh, and, you know, kind of ostracizing people who ask too many questions, making them appear to be disloyal or traitorous. So if we take this checklist, this, this list of symptoms, and assess whether or not public policy, uh, which, you know, public policy is based on publicly held beliefs. Beliefs are shaped by groupthink. But we can use this checklist to see whether or not our public policy is being driven by what could clinically be called groupthink. And the answer is yes, obvious, you know, and by extension, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to evaluate all of our current circumstance, ge geopolitical circumstance, and determine that right now, right now, the whole of humanity is being actively induced into a historically unprecedented global groupthink coma. When people are, are caught up in groupthink, they cannot think for themselves. This is the, the, the essence of the collective hive mind, friends. This groupthink coma, they're inducing it on purpose, and it is within this context, friends, that we can now turn our attention back to Bilderberg. Back to the Berg. Take two. Uh, yesterday, I was trying to get in the Bilderberg, and I got, man, I kind of went on another rabbit trail and all that, but I really want to 
focus on who's there and what they're talking about or what they stand for. Uh, but the reason I've taken the time to spell out the similarities between communism and fascism and all these isms, uh, communism and fascism are really two sides of the same socialist coin. But I'm, I'm, I want to spell it out because I believe that these two ideologies, communism and fascism, which are often presented as polar opposites, but they're merging, they're converging right now at the Bilderberg meeting. And moreover, when we consider the fact that communists, democratic socialists, and Western capitalists were, were the ones who put their heads together and formed the United Nations in the first place, we can see how this unholy alliance has long been the driving force that's driving humanity toward the new world order. And I know, friends, if you're new to the show, you're probably thinking, gosh, this guy sounds a little bit crazy. But friends, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been with me for a while, you know the new world order, that's their words, not mine. This unholy alliance, though, this is something that I've really been honing in on recently. Realize the communists and the capitalists put their heads together, formed the United Nations. The communists, the capitalists, the fascists right now are meeting in Bilderberg. The Bilderberg group is is really a globalist central committee of sorts. That would be a communist central committee. The central committee is a communist construct. And I believe it would behoove us to become familiar with some of the key players. Now, there are about a, over 130 people in Bilderberg, uh, heads of state and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and the question is, come on, why should we care what 130 people are doing in some far off land, you know? It, the reason we should care is because it will be their ideologies, it will be their political policies, their cravings for power that will be fueling the narrative that gets generated by their assembly. Okay? They get together, they talk about it, they get talking points, and then they kind of pass that around and disseminate it through their various organizations and networks. As previously discussed, friends, the ideas that people have, they're quite contagious, literally contagious, and nowhere are thoughts more virally transmitted than in swanky private social gatherings amongst the global elite. This is where the real secret conversations take place, behind closed doors. So, who are these elitists and what the hell are they up to, you know? I'm glad you asked, friends. You're not going to believe this. You're just not going to believe this. First up, as we work down the list, at the top of the Bilderberg A-list is none other than the despicable two-time gubernatorial loser Georgia candidate Stacey Abrams, who is a woman, I think, who teaches on race and black politics, who has been embroiled in controversy over scandalous voter suppression and blowing through $3 million, over $3 million in campaign donations to fund her lavish lifestyle and to purchase posh purple outfits like this one here. I put a little shot in the report today, friends. Please know, you if you're listening on a podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever the case may be, you just have to go to the Torch Retalk thetorchreport.com. Gosh, spit it out, Luke. Just go to thetorchreport.com and you can see this purple, this posh purple outfit uh, being worn by Stacey Abrams. Anyway, friends, I have to tell you, I think the fact that this woman, this woman of all the people on planet Earth is at the top of the list of attendees 
of the world's most elite and powerful players. I believe that is more than just a coincidence. It's it's more than just alphabetical order. Abrams puts her at the top of the list, right? But I, I honestly believe, friends, it's just another smack in the face. It's a smack in the face. It's a smack in the face. It's another look at who we can prop up and use to screw you over. It's a maneuver by the global cabal. It's a head fake, if you will. They alone are the king makers. And that's the point. I highly doubt that Stacey Abrams is going to be asked into the back room for discussions. You know, she's really just a token of diversity, equity and inclusion, nothing more and nothing less. So let's move on to some more interesting people. And I just want to grab some names from the list here and take note of their affiliations. Okay, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, that would be the the uh, the open artificial intelligence platform that's taking the world by storm. He was recently testifying on Capitol Hill, by the way, link there in the report. Also, Anne Applebaum, she's she's a paid propagandist over at the leftist rag, The Atlantic. Atlantic. Then there's Sally Benson. Sally Benson is a professor of energy science at Stanford. And Albert Burla, he's the CEO of Pfizer. And then there's uh, this guy, Taran Chabara, senior director of the National Security Council. Okay, we got big tech AI. We've got leftist propagandists. We've got uh, radical environmental scientists. We've got the pharmaceutical CEO. And now we've got the National Security Con- uh, Council. We also have Brian Deese, former director of the National Economic Council. How about Jen Easterly, director of CISA, the uh, the Cyber, what is it called? CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They're the ones that are using the algorithms to censor free speech, keep us all safe from disinformation and such. And then we've got Elizabeth Economy. Now, before we get into Elizabeth Economy for just a second, you know, think about the affiliations of who we just talked about. We've got, you know, Public private partnerships here. We've got propagandists, we've got big tech, big pharma, and we've got the deep state. All right. Now let's talk about Elizabeth Economy. Elizabeth Economy is a senior advisor for China at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Okay, so we have a China advisor at the U.S. Department of Commerce. And FYI, this lady, Elizabeth Economy, she has deep ties to China, deep ties to the environmental agenda. She actually wrote a paper called The The Internationalization of Environmental Protection. You think about the internationalization of environmental protection. She wrote that back in 1997. Think about how central that's been to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the Great Reset and all that. And and this lady, Elizabeth Economy, she also served as the vice chair on the WEF's Global Agenda Council, the World Economic, Forum, World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council, where she wrote emphatically about the need for the world to adjust to China. You see, the world needs to adjust to China because China is the role model for the world. And I know that you know that, but you have to realize that most people don't, friends. She also wrote The World According to China. And I just I'm I'm saying that to make it crystal clear here that Elizabeth Economy has been a key player in stitching together the globalist scheme to present China as a role model for the world, which means, i.e., positioning communism 
as the central framework for global governance. This lady, I mean, she really brings it all together, but positioning communism as the central framework for global governance, friends, it's not fringe quack conspiracy. Her fingerprints are everywhere. I put a screenshot in there that just links, it shows you, I highlighted several of the links, Foreign Affairs, Aspen Institute, uh, CSIS, all this kind of stuff. You know, she's, she's sharing Xi Jinping's vision for the world. We could, and perhaps we should uh, drill down on all of these attendees in the way that I'm kind of doing with Elizabeth uh, economy right now, friends. But I, I, that's that would be a little bit more of a tangent, more than we have time for. I see the time here. We're going to be a little bit long today. So please bear with me. Let's get back to the list. Uh, Kenneth Griffin. Kenneth Griffin is the founder and CEO of a multinational hedge fund it's called Citadel, ties to Enron and other corrupt corporatism. How about Niall Ferguson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution? Ferguson, this guy, old Fergie, is specifically tied to the Hoover Institution's Global Policy and Strategy Initiative on international security and the digital currency and electronic payments working group. I put the link in there. The digital currency and electronic payments working group really drives that getting toward global digital currency. And though that's telling enough, but that, uh, that link also led to a rather disturbing report uh, with Niall Ferguson's fingerprints all over that. It's called digital currencies, the U S China and the world at a crossroads. Friends, the gist of that report is that China is leading the world in instituting central bank digital currency with their EC, uh, you know, their their Ewan essentially. And if the U.S. doesn't act soon, says the Hoover Institution's Niall Ferguson, then you know, meaning if if the U.S. does not implement our own central bank digital coin ASAP, then the U.S. will risk losing the top dog spot in global finance. The Hoover report puts it like this, friends: "Quote, central bank digital currencies have taken." flight globally, and China is boldly leading the way. China is not alone. Many countries, from South Korea to the Bahamas, have joined in the global CBDC gold rush. The United States, however, has held back. If Washington does not move quickly to adopt a more proactive strategy on central bank digital currency, it risks losing its leading role in global finance and financial technologies, eroding the strategic influence of of the U.S. dollar, period, end quote. And I would add that that leads to the collapse of the American economy and all hell breaking loose. But what the hell do I know, friends? What's the lesson here? Once again, we see China is being held up as the role model for the world. I mean, we've really got to get that through our heads. And it's time now, we're being told, for the U.S. to get with the program. Either we go the way of China or we go the way of the Romans. That seems to be the ultimatum here. Hence, friends, the threat of the real red wave, which we've talked about. And don't think for a second that, uh, that our own corrupt political establishment, Republicans and Democrats alike, and the devious deep state aren't in on this. Uh, just take one look at a couple of the other participants at Bilderberg, and we can confirm that. We see Averill Haynes, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Intelligence. Oh, hanging out over there in, in Bilderberg. You know, Haynes is a former Obama national security advisor, former deputy director of the CIA. She was also legal counsel to the Hague Conference on the Private International Law, which is 
none other than an intergovernmental organization that works to uh, toward the progressive unification of international law. Nothing to see here, friends. Director of National Intelligence working to for the progressive unification of international law, hanging out in Bilderberg, whatever. Moving on, Gary Kasparov, chairman of the Renew Democracy Initiative. This guy... Gary Kasparov, he uh, he's a brilliant man. Uh, he, he he's lamenting the fact that the liberal dem- democratic order is under attack, and he's focusing his truly exceptional intelligence on the worldwide battle for democracy. Kasparov is a veritable genius. This guy is a chess grandmaster. He was actually ranked number one in the world for over 20 consecutive years. Brilliant man. And learning, I have to admit, you know, learning that Kasparov is at Bilderberg stings a little bit because this guy is kind of on par with with Einstein. And he happens to be working in cahoots with the global cabal in order to slave us all friends. And that just hurts a little bit. Interestingly enough, Kasparov also has ties to big tech. Thus, bridging the gap between the complex strategies of chess, and we could say geopolitical chess, and computer programming for artificial intelligence in a way that only his genius could. You know, after uh, first defeating several of the world's best supercomputers in the mid-90s, Kasparov was ultimately the first person, the first world champion, to lose a tournament chess match to artificial intelligence. So they're using this guy's brilliance to train the machines that now can beat his brilliance. Unfortunately, Kasparov happens to be a very brilliant communist. You know, he he was elected to the Communist Central Committee in 1987. Later, of course, he left the party. He formed his own United Civil Front. You know, that merged with the liberals. The United Civil Front merged with liberals, nationalists, socialists, and communists. And they all banded together to form what was called the Other Russia. And there he worked with the Other Russia as a representative. Uh, He worked with representatives from the National Bolshevik Party, Moscow University, the vanguard of Red Youth, the Central Bank of Russia, and he was doing all of this to oppose Putin and advance democracy, if only in the communist sense of the words. Remember, advancing democracy is the first step in a communist revolution. Anyway, 2008, the other Russia chose Kasparov as its candidate for the uh, Russian general election. They wanted him to run against Putin. And from that, friends, I think we can see he's just another piece on the globalist chessboard. He's being used to stir up another revolution, and it's all for the greater good. But so what, Luke? So what? What the hell are you talking about? Friends, those are just the first 12 uh, Americans on the list. Kasparov, was he lives in, I think he lives in Manhattan now or something like that. Anyway, we can uh, we could easily add in some of the other hitters, uh, heavy hitters like the CEO of Microsoft, the editor in chief at Bloomberg, CEO of Google, you know, uh, president of Goldman Sachs, just to name a few friends. There are many, many others linked there in the report today. But from this initial survey, I think it's 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 uh, fair to say it should be clear that the deck is stacked against us here in more ways than can be counted. These global elites are the driving force behind all of the isms that are destroying our country. They are trying to win the battle for democracy, which I must remind you is the first step of a commie revolution. You know, the commies are taking over the world. These public 
private partnerships are the kernel of corporatism, representing the perfect merger between communism, fascism, and socialism. They also represent the epitome of group think, wherein their collective delusions allow them to temporarily transcend their petty political differences to you know, conquer the peasants in order to achieve their common agenda, which, of course, is centralized control over every aspect of our lives for the greater good, friends, and such is the greatest threat of humanity, but resist we must, and that is the message of my heart for today. Friends, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take the time to find that little heart on the Substack app or the website. Click that heart and give me some love. Subscribe if you have not subscribed already, and of course, the greatest honor of all is if you share this podcast with someone share it with anyone share it with everyone you know get out there and embrace this fine that is fantastic fiery feisty friday friends and i'll look forward to talking to you again soon